I do regret probably not doing it sooner. I think um, there is a tendency in a small business to try and do everything yourself and to try, you know, and, and expect everything to be done the way that you do it. And one of the big things about stepping away and, and enabling other people to make decisions is you have to accept that some decisions will be wrong and some things will be, will be done in a way that you know isn't the way you want them done. You've got to discipline yourself to say, if I don't give people and enable people to make decisions, then they won't make them. But it is a difficult process to, to go through. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's show, we have Daniel Leach, the CEO of Design for Structures. Daniel has a vast experience in structural design and design for manufacturing and assembly. In this episode, we talk about Daniel's multi-decade entrepreneurial journey through the construction industry, his thoughts on off-site construction, talent, innovation, and pain points in our industry. We really enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Daniel. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a review. This helps us to get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. Before we dive in, shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors, and advisors, check them out by visiting www.d-beta.com. And this is www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes podcast where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Dan, so thanks for uh, agreeing to participate in uh, Bricks and Vice podcast. So you are CEO of uh, D4S, Design for Structures. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you and the businesses that you operate and how did you end up running D4S? Yeah, sure. So I've uh, been in the industry for 22 years now. We originally started out as a steelwork detailing business, which was um, known to many of our clients as TDS. And we had, when I joined the business, we just transitioned from drawing board to 2D CAD. And we were working primarily for manufacturers of uh, heavy hot rolled steel. And we sort of developed the business on over probably about a 10-year period where we were doing things for heavy hot rolled steel fabricators. We were also doing a lot of um, architectural metal work. So things like staircases, balconies, balustrades, structural glass, um, things like that. And towards probably 2008, 2009, we started to transition the business from 2D CAD into 3D modeling. And then obviously when the government announced their sort of um, their plans around BIM and digital, in 2010, 2011, we then started to try and reposition the business to get ourselves ready for DFMA and things like that. About, uh, well, 2011, we set up a training academy, um, which is called CADCO. And um, to date, we've recruited, trained, upskilled and reintroduced over 600 young people into the industry. And the third cog in the wheel, if you like, is design for structures. So seven years ago, we were finding that we were struggling to get the business into the position that we wanted and the information that we were receiving uh, typically at stage four from main contractors was largely incomplete and we were taking a lot of risk and responsibility in coordinating and trying to put right the stage three and four design. Still a problem. Yeah and if and when problems exist there was a lot of risk associated to what we did so if we got a beam or a column wrong 
it wouldn't be uncommon for us to get a fairly hefty back charge with things like crane costs and labour costs and material costs all thrown into boot. So we felt if we can't beat them, let's join them. Mm. So the plan was to set up a structural engineering uh, division. And over the last six, seven years, we've been very much marketing the three divisions independently. So TDS still providing construction modeling services to manufacturers. Design for structures providing structural engineering services, so civils and infrastructure design, underground drainage, foundation, substructure, superstructure, and then obviously the construction engineering team doing sort of uh, connection design and, and calculations and stuff like that. And the long-term strategy was to try and bring the stage four and five under one umbrella. So um, we've relaunched at the start of this year simply as design for structures in an, an effort to try and simplify the outbound marketing message to our clients. And what we what we now offer is um, effectively everything from Reba Stage Zero to Reba Stage Five under one roof. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we want to take more responsibility. Um, it's another of my frustrations about the industry because it's so risky. <laughs> People don't now take responsibility. They don't want to put dimensions on drawings. They don't want to share IFCs and things like that. So for us, if we can provide a fully coordinated design from start to finish that takes it through to a manufacturing level of detail, then we believe we can add huge value to the end project. And we can also significantly de-risk our own position within the the, the construction project in terms of the way that construction projects are are contracted and procured. So um, yeah, really exciting times. We're we're now up to 60 people, split pretty much 50-50 between our construction modeling team and our engineering team. And the plan is over the next two or three years is to take those 60 people and hopefully grow it up to about 80 to 90 people over the next couple of years. So Mm -hmm. very much on an upward trajectory. That sounds great. And at the moment, yeah, we cover lots of markets. Um, We do a lot of traditional construction projects and we've also got quite a big MMC team. So we do a lot of offsite and modular construction projects as well. So very, very diverse and very wide ranging from massive structures like Hong Kong Terminal 2 down to two-bedroom, three-bedroom, four-bedroom homes and stuff like that. So, yeah, quite a big um, coverage. Dan, I've got so many questions because it sounds like you've done so much, but I'll try and keep this section (laughs) short. But just to have a personal curiosity, really, is how does your role as a CEO develop from when it was just you to now having 60 people work for you? Mm, That's a good question. (laughs) Really challenging. Um, I mean, I would say probably as as recently as about five years ago, if the air conditioning was broke in the office, someone came and knocked on my door and uh, I went and sorted out the air conditioning <laughs> in the office. So, yeah, things have, have changed quite considerably. I mean, 10 years ago, there was eight of us in one office and it was very much um, an SME, owner-managed and very hands-on. Every inquiry that came in came to me and every quote that went out went from me. So I think it's become... A big challenge. We we put in a senior management team around about six, seven years ago, and we have now divisional managing directors. Um, So Jonathan Locke heads up the engineering team, and James McNee, who's been with me from the very start, he heads up the construction modeling team. And what we've had to do is just evolve as a business. So create a structure, and you know, that's been further, I suppose, complicated by COVID and the lockdown and everybody working remotely and all that sort of stuff. So the business is pretty unrecognizable, but um, I've gone from being very operationally involved in the business to now taking more of a backseat, um, doing more of the selling and marketing of the business, um, a little bit more of the strategy. And I look after all of the financial side of the business in terms of money in, money out and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. my role's developed quite a lot, really, certainly in, a, in the, re- the more recent, probably four or five years. 
Mm-hmm. Would you say that uh, if you like stepped out from this uh, day-to-day management uh, roles and zoom out earlier, could you have like a larger business even? Or I'll be honest, the, the, there wasn't really the main underlying strategy, and it's, it might be one of the things that we cover today. I just couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> the stress and the hassle and the issues that exist in construction. You just get to a point where, you know, your brain can't take any more <laughs> hassle. <laughs> you know, the construction yeah. industry pretty much day to day is a battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a battle to get work. It's a battle to get paid. Mm. It's a battle to get information. It's a battle to make sure that your team are supported and are in a good place, you know, mentally and physically. So mm. it, it got to a point, you know, where my phone rang literally for everything and you can only do that for so long. <laughs> Sounds like you might. <laughs> The step away for me was more like kind of like we've got to find more people that we can share the res- responsibility and we can share running the business with really. So, um, but I think yeah. I do regret Martin to answer your question. I do regret probably not doing it sooner. I think um, there is a tendency in a small business to try and do everything yourself mm-hmm. and to try, you know and, and expect everything to be done the way that you do it. And one of the big things about stepping away and, and enabling other people to make decisions is you have to accept that mm. some decisions will be wrong and some yeah. things will be, will be done in a way that, you know, isn't the way you want them done. You've got to discipline yourself to say, if I don't give people and enable people to make decisions, then they won't make them. So, you know, it, but it is a difficult process mm-hmm. to, to go through. Yeah. Letting go. Letting it go. Letting go. Yeah. yeah just a, just another quick one, very quickly, Dan, and it's just about like growing from you to, to the 60 people is... Your process for hiring, do you hire before you plan to grow? Because I've heard this strategy from someone where they just hire people and then they're like, then we'll go and get the work. Or it's like, do you get the work in and go, oh crap, we're busy, we now need to hire? It's a little bit of both because obviously circumstances sometimes dictate what you do. I mean, for us at the moment, I think that I'm more comfortable with the position of growing the team first and worrying about the work as a secondary thing. Because I think if you commit to work and you're under-resourced, then you're ultimately going to fail on the project and mm. you're going to fail with your team. But I think what typically does happen in construction is most businesses work better when they're at full capacity or over capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think with us, we do try and plan our recruitment and we do make strategic decisions around increasing the team, for example. But what also happens is that the, the team gets really busy really quick and then you, you have to go out and recruit because you've got, to, you know, you've got so much work on. So, I think what we're, we're always mindful of is we don't want 120 people, for argument's sake, working on bad projects for bad clients on bad payment terms and things like that. So mm-hmm. for us, if we reach a plateau at some point where we haven't got enough good clients, good customers, good good projects, then we'll potentially uh, we'll potentially end it there. But at the moment, I couldn't tell you if in 10 years' time we're going to be a thousand people or we're going to be a hundred people because I think the industry will probably dictate that to us in, in terms of how we're treated by customers, clients, and, and and whether we get the breaks that we need to continue to grow the business. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's touch on technology a little bit. So you said that in, I think in 2008, around 2008, you went from 2D drawings to some uh, building information modeling tools that enabled BIM and design within BIM. And now uh, we are 2023. What's your take on on innovation in the construction and design and the tools that we as engineers, architects and stakeholders of the design process are using? Where are we going? What's the next thing after the beam or is it going to be just improved slightly? What do you think? Where are we going with this? 
My own personal experience is the main blocker to Beerman digital technology. And on a positive note, the, the technology and the innovation that exists with regards to some of the solutions that are coming into the market is phenomenal. There's some absolutely unbelievable things. Again, 15 years ago, I would go to site with a digital camera, take some photos of what we were surveying. Now you can go to site with your phone. You can do scans with your phone. You can, you know, you can do PowerPoint surveys and, you know, scan to BIM technology. We've seen stuff like virtual reality where you can literally wander around the model with a, with a set of goggles on and, you know, put yourself actually in immersively in, into the model. But I think the reality is a lot of these things are really powerful opportunities. But they're just not being utilized in, in the industry. And I think the main reason for that is because of the way that we procure jobs and the way that contractually we set these projects up. So I think it's been exciting in one respect to see how the technology is developing. But I think it's been incred incredibly frustrating in another uh, respect in that we're just not utilizing the tools. I mean, even when you talk about BIM now, it's fairly common for us to bring an ISC in from an architect or an engineer or another subcontractor. And that IFC is absolutely littered with caveats about what you can and can't use. So you end up remodeling, redrawing, redetailing the same thing, you know, a multitude of times. So, sorry, Dan, could you just explain that? Explain that slightly again. So, by IFC, this is the the BIM model, right? Yeah. So typically speaking, the, um, the everybody's working in slightly different environments. So it's fairly standard practice for architects and engineers to do the stage up to stage four in Revit. Mm -hmm. But when we're modeling um, structures, if we need manufacturing data, we would typically use Tecla. Now, Tecla and Revit are two different products, two different softwares. So the, the, the universal sort of file format that all of those software uses is IFC. So typically, we would get an IFC file in Revit, and we would be able to import that IFC file into Tecla, and in theory, then run the job on. The problem that you've got is the, they give you the IFC file, so they say, here's the model. But by the way, you can't use it. And it's oh, kind of like, well, okay. so what's the point of BIM then? You know? Yeah. And and the reason for that is primarily because they don't want you to use their model because if there's anything wrong with their model, yeah. they get the blame, they get the penalty, oh, they get clobbered yeah. with, you know. So for me, the big stage change that needs to happen is if we're all going to trust the technology and enable the technology, then it will limit the chances of things going wrong. And I think that's the, the bit that people just can't see the wood for the trees at the moment. It's kind of like, well, yeah. you know, we're not going to share the information because we don't want to be liable for any mistakes or issues. <laughs> yeah. Don't you think that it is a little bit like, so you said that in the last few years, the, the technology is like become like very good and brilliant tools are coming out. So I feel like there's, um, as an engineer or architect, you have to uh, operate on complex IFC models and there's like, you need to learn how to use it. And it's not like a one month course or this, it's much longer process, I would say. And obviously you need to practice it. And to me, I have a feeling that because it is complex to use it well and share it with other professionals, other stakeholders, it becomes a very difficult task. So My feeling is that the reason that people don't want to share this stuff and there's lots of caveats is that because, oh, maybe I have made a mistake and I don't want anyone to pick up this mistake and then claim for my insurance. So I still feel like we're not there in terms of technology and the way things are presented in the, in the BIM environment, that it's still difficult to spot these mistakes. So because otherwise people people would just share it because it's, 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 it must be right. It must be correctly done. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's all about risk and, and mistakes and problems and people not wanting to open themselves up to commercial risk. But 
it, the best analogy I can give you is it, it's a bit like your house is on fire and you've got a fire engine in the garage, but you're trying to put the fire out using buckets of water from your garden tap, <laughs> like you know, or your garden hose. It's like what what infuriates me and frustrates the life out of me is when you look at all of the what we all know as like the, the unbelievable architecture across the world and you think like all the monasteries, the churches, the even if you look at the London Underground, the scale of the ambition to build and construct some of those projects is mind-blowing. And it was all done before we had all of this construction technology available to us. And it feels like we've, we've made all these improvements with mm-hmm. regards to the technology and the tools that are available, but we're not actually improving the way that we construct and design buildings. And, it, and it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, the, the thought that someone actually came up with the London Underground as a concept and said, let's dig a load of tunnels under the city and stick a load of railway mm-hmm. lines down there and we can transport people around. When you consider that that decision was made with the technology that was available to them at that point, it's mind-blowing, absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing. It is. Yeah, you're making me question yeah. a lot now. Yeah, it's and yet we can't get the basic fundamentals of BIM agreed. And you touched on a good thing, Martin, when you said about kind of BIM's new to people, like everybody's learning. So when you bring new technology to any market, it's new to everybody. So when you go to the construction seminars and you hear the contractors and the clients saying, well, we want our supply chain to innovate, the problem is, if we go away and we try and write some scripts or some code to develop, say, design automation tools or parametric modeling, which is stuff that we've done before, if we write some code or some script and we roll it out on a project and we're supposed to be issuing 15 tonne of steel on Friday, if that bit of code or script throws a wobbly on Thursday night and we can't issue 15 tonne of steel out on Friday, we get 50 grand back charge. So the environment isn't set up for me to go, right team, go and write some scripts and some code and look at making ourselves more efficient the environment is you've got 50 hours to deliver that piece of work how do we deliver it in 49 Mm -hmm. so everybody's just trying to work as quick as they can to get the job off their desk and onto somebody else's so Mm -hmm. we've got this sort of ironic situation where everybody's become so risk averse that we've created now a culture and an environment that's riskier than ever because no one's actually willing to take responsibility for what they're doing for fear of getting chastised or blamed or commercially penalized for what they've done so it's really really frustrating <laughs> and in, in the end of the day the cost is uh, bared by the customer i think because if everyone needs to redo someone else's work obviously the one who pays is the cust- end user really right so it's not ultimately good how do we overcome this is there any way that you kind of you see like taking your experience within the industry you see like what needs to change culture in simple terms, we've, we've got to change the way that we procure jobs. We've got to make the environment less risky for everybody. We've got to enable people to take risks, educated risks, because if we don't, then nothing's going to change. So, you know, in simple terms, what we've done with our business is my solution to the problem, which is if we can't bring in information from the engineer or the architect, let's become the engineer or the architect. Mm-hmm. So we're in control of the whole process and we can share information within our... One-stop shop. Absolutely. But in terms of the industry, I mean, we found that our offering of zero to five under one roof, for example, has been taken up more probably by the manu- the MMC world, by the offsite world, because a lot of the companies that we work with in the modular space, they take on the role of principal contractor on the jobs. They do the turnkey. So... They, because they know they're going to manufacture the modules and install the modules, they've got a vested interest in the stage four and five information being correct. 
so they buy into the fact that we're doing zero to five. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make a sweeping statement, but what we're finding more regularly with let's say the traditional main contractors, they're still going down the route of saying, well, we're sending the stage three information down to our supply chain and it's down to them to make the stage four and five work as part of their deliverable. If they build it and it works, we pay them. And if it build if they build it and it doesn't work, then we screw them. Mm. <laughs> so again, you know, unless we change that model fundamentally, because you're in this situation where an architect and an engineer does a stage three design, and it's not their fault that, that it's a generic design or that it's that in, in a lot of cases it's fundamentally flawed. Because at the point where they're doing their stage three design, they don't know who the multitude of different contractors are going to be or the materials and products that are going to be on the building. So you end up the stage three design then goes out to all the different main contractors and the main contractor that gets their price the most wrong based on that information wins the job. Yes. And then <laughs> yes. and then the main contractor then takes that stage three design and goes to all their supply chain and every single supply chain company that gets their price the most wrong also wins the job. Yeah. And then we wonder why we can't construct and build, you know, a, a, in anything like an efficient way. So so how do we change that? Well, we've either got to get earlier. Yeah. We've either got to get earlier engagement in terms of the developing the stage three. So, one of the challenges that we're trying consolidation. To, yeah, one of the challenges we're trying to overcome is that engineers don't manufacture, so they don't have manufacturing knowledge. So, Bolt in our construction modelling team that have worked with manufacturers for thirty years brings that manufacturing level of experience to the engineering team, and then what we're trying to do is impart mm-hmm. our engineering knowledge into our detailing team so they're coming up with better details and better ways of working so it's more like vertical integration 100 percent, you know and that's why i say a lot of a lot of people do say well aren't you taking a lot of risk by by doing the whole project (laughs) you shouldn't be in construction (laughs) we're actually taking less risk we're taking more responsibility but by coordinating the design we're actually taking less risk because there's less chance that things can go wrong Mm-hmm. So, like stepping outside of uh, engineering only uh, for a second, is it not the answer for this problem design and build concept in general? Because then you have one entity dealing with everything, like the whole process from the design to up to the completion. Is it not? Because what you did with with D4S and and others, it's like consolidation of the design process with an engineering remit. I, I feel like right, but. Like broadly speaking, if the process is taken over by like one entity and it's design and build concept, that should like avoid these problems of like passing the risk onto someone else, really. Yeah, it's it's whichever way you look at it in terms of the way that you contract and build projects, whether it be D and B or whether it be other forms of contract, everything's about selling the risk down mm-hmm. and moving the risk down. So for me, while that continues to be the case all you're going to have is problems and you're going to have you're going to create an environment where everybody is out to protect themselves and the environment isn't to build the best project you know if you were building a, your own home you would want the best possible outcome to that home now if your budget's half a million but it costs 525,000 but you end up with the best version of that home that you're going to live in for the next 25 years sure the majority of people would accept that Yeah. It almost feels to me like if you've got a half a million pound budget, but someone comes along and says, I can build that for 450,000, you go, great, I'm 50 grand for the good. Yeah. But you end up with a home that you've got to live in for 25 years that you're going to have to knock about, you're going to have to, you're going to have to maintain, you're going to have to upkeep. Yeah. And so in the longer term, it becomes more expensive. But again, you know, talking about BIM and digital before, Martin, even on the jobs where BIM is happening and, and digital tools are evolving, 
it's still only being used in my experience in my you know on the coal phase it's only being used to design and construct the building we're not looking at what about the next 40 or 50 years what about the life cycle of that mm -hmm. building how do we use that technology and those maintenance 100 percent, because so much more could be done but at the moment we don't have the time to do it because it's kind of like here's your building we've got to be on site in eight weeks and you've got to go and put all the design and, and issues that you know you're going to inherit but we've still got to be on site in eight weeks or 12 weeks or 16 weeks or six months whatever it might be so it feels to me like we're on this hamster wheel and no matter how quick we run the wheel just spins faster and so you're never catching up so it feels like the whole industry needs to slow down and what we've done is we've we've sped up to such a speed if you go back again 20 years when you had a drawing board and you had eight columns you had to physically draw eight columns when we transitioned from drawing board to CAD, you drew one column and you copied it eight times and then just modified it. So we sped up, you know, the, the efficiency of our work tenfold. Mm -hmm. But what happened was instead of going, right, every, everybody can slow down now and work in loads faster, what they started to do was go, well, I want my drawings on Tuesday. I want my drawings on Wednesday. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden we, we used to put drawings in the post. And so clients would ring up and say, where are my drawings? You say, well, we posted them on Monday. Sorry, they're not with you. Now we get like, we've got this thing where someone... Sounds like comes, a dream. Yeah, someone answers an RFI now this morning at 11 o'clock and then goes, yeah. can I have my drawings this afternoon? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they want you to update the model, re recreate the drawings and then issue the PDF this afternoon. So we're just all rushing around like idiots, like absolute, you know, heads yes, kicking. I agree. Yeah, I like your your insights, Dan, on procurement and I think that's totally right. Like Martin, you said, is D&B not the answer? But if you're a client and you've got this like, tower to build say and you get like you're going to go and competitively tender to like four main contractors or whatever because you want to get the best price at the end of the day you're not going to like be willing to take a risk on someone that is slightly more innovative because it's good for the industry but it's going to take like six months longer because they use the sexiest latest innovative tools and uh, it's going to cost you more because they've got to pay for the software or whatever you're going to go for the company that is like proven is on this so-called hamster wheel that you mentioned dan and uh, can just get it done for like a cheaper price, but it's more wrong and wrong as, as it goes down. So it's like um, a lot of subjects in construction, like sustainability. And one reason for like mass adoption for that is probably because the, like, the government don't drive it or whatever. So we need like more, more influence from the top down, really, uh, for, the, for these things to be implemented. But then in the same sense, innovation is like, you read books like The Innovator's Dilemma, is like companies with that smaller can innovate harder because like they're more agile and da, 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 da. So it's like a big conundrum and dilemma, but I, I don't know what the answer is. You just said something really profound, Owen, and probably don't realize. So you, you just said you want the bet that the client wants the best price. Okay. So what is the best price? Yeah. The, 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 the culture within construction at the moment isn't the best price. It's the lowest price. And anybody that tells you any different is absolutely talking nonsense because it happens time after time after time now i've argued for a long time when we talked about that stage three information going out to the main contractors and, and those that get their price the most wrong win the job mm -hmm. the, the crazy thing is if, if five companies are on any rung of the ladder whether it be the main contractor or any of the subcontractors when they price work you don't end up with an expensive price a mid-range price and a low price you end up with three different prices because everybody's guessing what the client wants and, and what's required. Mm. So to me, what you've got to do is improve the information that everybody is procuring and quoting to. And by doing that, you will end up with more accurate information. So 
again, flip into where we are as a business. If we do the stage four and five information for the main contractor, they can take all of our manufacturing information, NC data files, cutting lists, GAs, fab drawings, the whole shebang. They can go to a fabricator and that fabricator can go, okay, there's 9,364 tons of steel. There's 46,000 nuts, bolts and washers and they can price absolutely accurately what's required. Whereas at the moment, what they get is they get a stage three design with maybe the section size sorted and a, gen a generic layout of the steel. But they've then got to go, okay, we think there's 9,436 tonnes, but by the end of the job, there's 9,863 tonnes and they're out of pocket. So, mm -hmm. I mean, the one tool that I have seen in the last five, six years that I think would make a huge difference, and that's integrated project insurance. Mm. What's that? Integrated project insurance, IPI. So the facility that we actually train out of uh, for CADCO that we teach our students in is a building called Advanced 2 at Dudley College of Arts and Technology. And that was built and constructed using an IPI model. And in very simple terms, what, what it means is you create a contract and an insurance mechanism that all of the consultants pay into. So you end up with a, a project insurance policy. So instead of everybody insuring everything 10 times, you end up with a, an insurance mm -hmm. policy that covers that one project. And in the event that there is an issue with that project, the insurance is there to protect all of the, the relevant stakeholders that are designing and developing the project. Mm -hmm. And it was done in an open way that if the budget for the job, if the ceiling wasn't extended and it ultimately it cost less to construct, there was a shared gain across the consultants. Mm -hmm. If it cost more, there was a shared pain across the consultants. So we win together, mm -hmm. we lose together, we're a team. And I think what that in invariably would have done was knock down those walls of, well, we don't want to share information or instead of sitting around the table and saying, we've got a problem with the facade or we've got a problem with the steel or we've got a problem with the concrete. And it's kind of like at the moment, everybody stares at the floor and goes, hope it's not me, hope it's not me, hope it's not me. Yeah. You take away the, the finger pointing of, right, they're the ones that have made this mistake. They're going to pay the bill. Um, it turns into we've got a problem. How do we fix it? And how do we fix it quickly? And how and how do we end up with a, a better solution? But but I've just not seen. I've said I know IPI exists on certain projects, and I I think I don't know what the reason is as to why it hasn't taken off. But I think it's a real viable solution to the problem that we're talking about. You know what? I think there's something interesting that I think I mentioned to you also when we initially chatted a few months ago. So like my experience is so born and raised in Poland, and uh, I started working in construction over there. So in, in Eastern Europe, at least, you have like architectural practice, engineering practice, QS practice within one thing. Yeah. So the problem of this integrated insurance is kind of solved in this location is that there is one business which kind of have different people and they take the project on board and then deal with it. I'm actually now in Dubai uh, for a few days and I spoke with some architects and engineers as well and they there's the same concept. So people are within one practice. There's engineer, there's architect, there's M&E consultant, and they kind of work to, to get the project delivered. So this is interesting because actually uh, comparing to the UK, is UK is very like fragmented mm -hmm. and very specialized. You've got engineer who does only engineering. And yeah, it was very new to me when I, when I moved over and experienced that. So maybe there's something in, in this as well. Yeah, there's never been more companies. I mean, again, you know, you look at the the volume of products and solutions that are out there is fantastic, but, the, but it brings another problem to the table, which is, again, leading back to that stage three design. If you don't know what those products and systems are, I'm not 
in any way, shape or form criticizing architects or engineers because they're part of a process and a system that's fundamentally flawed. Yeah. And we do do some amazing work. There are some unbelievable architects and some fantastic engineers. Buildings get made and go up. But I think it's just become like a not very enjoyable environment to work in. And with things like mental health and all the mm. things that COVID has, has thrown up, I think a lot of people have taken stock during the, like the lockdowns and stuff like that. There's a lot more emphasis on work-life balance and stuff like that. And if you're operating in an environment that's toxic, and construction can be toxic. If that was your mate, if that was your friend or your or your family member, you would stay away from that friend or that family member because they're causing you problems and issues. And so we're in this situation where if we're going to attract the next generation of talent, and this is going to be a generational change, then we've got to use the really good stuff. So I think there could be a lot of cross-pollination from the gaming industry, for example, because of the way that the industry is moving. But if the technology is great and the, the environment that you can work in is amazing, but actually the culture that exists, so 80% of your day is made up of just a nightmare, you know, fighting, arguing and all that. Putting out fires, yeah. You're basically, you're not going to be able to attract people in. And I, and I think some of the, the older generation that have been in the industry for a long time, I know a lot of people that have gone, do you know what? I've reviewed things. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go yeah. off and do something else. I know a few people have done that recently. Yeah. That's a real problem for the industry. We've got to make it a more attractive place to come and work and to come and develop a career. And we've never had a better opportunity to do that when you look at some of the construction technology that's evolving. Yeah. It's a, it looks from the outside in like a really attractive place to come. But then you get you roll your sleeves up and get stuck in and go, this is a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we've got to really move things forward and, and try and turn things into more of an open and, and positive framework and, we are starting to see things like design partnerships and design frameworks coming through now. So people are starting to talk more about partnerships rather than subcontractor or supplier, you know, and, and I think that's really important, mm. getting that kind of changing that mentality where we're a design team and we're a partnership and we, we win together mm. and we lose together. I think that that is fundamental to, to moving some of this stuff forward. Cool. Dan, you touched on um, technology then, so it's probably a nice way to segue into this um Next question. So a company like uh, D4S, obviously a large company, large number of employees or mid-size, whatever you want to call it. How do you stay on top of innovation? And, and like you obviously do a good amount of research and development, but is it risky for you guys? Like you gave an example earlier about having to get out your drawings on Friday and, and a script breaks on a Friday. Like is, is that just because you, you're not willing to take a risk or is there like other things that need to be considered when a company like yours is trying to implement some new technology? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to say and think that we're early adopters. So I think we're in that small window of people that will try stuff as it as it comes out. So if you look at stuff like augmented reality, we were going to shows eight, nine years ago where you could hover over one of our drawings and the model would pop out of the, the drawing. You could, you could, And it was very gimmicky and it was more about kind of provoking interest rather than yeah. it actually being part of our deliverable. But yeah, I mean, it's same with BIM, really. As soon as the government announced it, within six months, we were looking at BIM accreditation. How do we implement it? How do we upskill our guys? So we're very much at the front end of it. But the reality is, as a business, if you're not being asked to utilize those tools as part of your delivery, then it is only going to be a gimmick. It's great to see, and we've been in meetings, when you put a VR headset on and you can go into a federated model and you can be in the boiler room that you've just been designing. It's amazing. But is anyone actually really utilizing that on live mm. construction projects? No. 
So at the moment, we do a great job, I think, within the industry of saying, look at all this great stuff we can do. Look at all this capability that we've got. But the reality is, until someone actually stands up at a seminar and says, look at this fantastic model that we created for this project, and instead of saying it was all a roaring success, say, actually, this was bloody hard work for everybody that took place because we had issues with ISCs, we had issues with naming conventions, we had issues with model sizes. Those are the things that we've got to talk about as an industry in order to make the changes and improvements that we need. But we don't. It's all smoke and mirrors. Look how great we are, you know, and we're all guilty of doing it. And I think that's where we, we've got to we've got to talk a bit more openly. But in answer to your question, you know, we go to the seminars and the exhibitions. We go to Digital Construction Week. We go to Future Build. We go to London Olympia to the construction seminars and stuff like that. And you know, every now and then you see you see something that you go, oh wow, that's an interesting bit of technology. Let's go and do a bit more research in it, and let's let's make sure that if there's something here that is potentially going to impact what we do. Let's make sure that we don't become obsolete. And if we've got to move with the market, let's move with the market. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult because if you don't know something exists, you don't know it exists. Yeah. So yeah. you have to be, there's an element of luck as well, I think, going that, you know, you, you meet the right people or you see that, you know, you watch the right webinars and you see this new technology evolving. And it's then down to you as to whether you, that fork in the road, whether you go, we're going to go that way and we're going to go that way. So we had directors of the business in 2010 that retired because they didn't want to retrain. They didn't want to move from 2D to 3D. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'd, over, mm. they'd overseen the transition from drawing boards to 2D CAD in the late 90s, <laughs> but didn't want to transition from 2D CAD to 3D BIM. So, you know, some people decide to go that way and some people decide to go that way. And, mm. you know, who's right and who's wrong, you, you probably find out five years down the line. Yeah. Okay. I want to touch on definitely one more topic, which is uh, modular construction in general. So Dan, what is the like percentage within D4S or other businesses? What's the percentage of residential and commercial projects that you deal with? Is there any like a data that you know, more or less? We're probably running about 40% MMC slash offsite, 60% traditional. But I would say on the okay. MMC side, we do everything from residential housing to medium rise resi, high rise resi, student accommodation, hotels, schools, hospitals, you know, all manner of things. Okay. So within this DFMA, which is designed for manufacturing and assembly, how do you see this technology of, of uh, modular homes uh, being more widely adopted as UK has around, well, the target from the government is I think 300,000 new build homes every year. And apparently we are not keeping up with this number. So is modular construction a solution to to the problem of lack of housing or not? And maybe you can share some insights from the design point of view. Is it better, worse, cheaper, anything? That's um, a fairly open question and an up for debate. I mean, I think one of the mistakes that we see regularly is like the, again, the cost comparison of modular against traditional and is it going to save me money and stuff like that. I think when you look at the modular industry, there's no doubt that that is a growth, high growth sector. There are more companies investing in that sort of approach. There are more companies building with that kind of methodology. And the stigma that was attached to modular in maybe the late 70s, early 80s, where it was seen as like cheap prefab type stuff. When you go and look at modular construction now, in a lot of instances, you wouldn't know whether it had been constructed traditionally or whether it was done in a factory and and it was modular. And I think it probably echoes some of the things we said earlier about making the industry a nicer place to be. 
But if you were manually constructing a home, would you rather be knee-deep in concrete in the rain, wind and snow or in a nice warm factory in a controlled environment with nice conditions? I know which one I'd pick. So <laughs> so I think um, with regards to modular, it, it can definitely be a massive help to addressing those housing shortages. But I would say in my experience, a lot of the already established modular companies aren't necessarily looking at residential as a market. They've got their, their foot in another door that they're, they're quite happy mm. with. And I think that the one challenging point and tipping point for modular, if it comes to housing and um, residential, is it's Warranties. very challenging to fund. Funders are, are, are nervous about MMC. Mm. And it's difficult to insure because insurers are nervous about it. And then you've also got the issue around things like pipeline. So there's some companies have come to the fore in the last five, 10 years with some really innovative solutions. But then when they're talking to local housing authorities or larger clients, they say, well, where's your factory? Where's your workforce? Where's your modular house that I want to come and have a look at? So you're almost, it feels at times like you're in this kind of chicken and egg scenario where there's there's appetite to go and build a factory and to build a team that could make modular homes. And there's an appetite from the purchaser to buy modular homes, but the purchaser wants to see the factory before they'll buy. And the factory want to see the pipeline before they'll invest hundred million quid in building a, a factory, you know, to make it all, to make it all work. So, but yeah, I mean, at the speed at which you can construct offsite and modular, it would certainly enable us to develop and design and standardize design, which would again de-risk things mm-hmm. and roll it out en masse. I think, unfortunately, at the moment, we're in this kind of chicken and egg standoff where, as you mentioned, the warranties, you know, you've got to have BOPAS, you've got to have NHBC. Again, why? You know, why isn't there a universal certification scheme that, that modular house builders can follow? But, but I think um, there's a huge opportunity for modular to help address those issues. But at the moment, there's a number of challenges that the industry needs to find solutions for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, good. Uh, do you think, this is a question that bugs me, do you think modular is the answer? I said this to Martin and he was like, absolutely, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it can be the answer, but it's not the only answer. I think the industry and the, and the, the demand for housing is so big that not just one solution is going to be the answer. I think what you've got to have is a, is a, is a multiple of, of different solutions. If you had a bottomless pit of money and you had a client that was really open and engaging and they were happy to support setting up some of these factories, absolutely. Do I think that the modular industry will be a massive contributor over the next 10 years to addressing those the housing shortage? Yes, I do. I think that the momentum's there. There are obviously lots of things that could change that. But at the moment, if, unless there's any massive kinks in the road, I think the, the off-site and modular industry is on a trajectory that is, that, that's only going one way. But ultimately, like I said before, it's going to take lots of investment, deep pockets. Um, we're going to have to find ways around funding. MMC, as a word, has really, in my opinion, it has complicated things. Somebody somewhere at some stage in the last three, four, five years decided MMC was going to be the new word for off-site construction. So now anybody that's doing off-site says that they're doing MMC. So so you have the funders going, well, if it's modern methods of construction, we need more information about what the modern bit is before <laughs> yeah. we send you the money. Yeah. Now, in the reality, if you've got a business that's still doing the same thing that, they've been, that they were doing 20 years ago, but calling it MMC, all it's actually doing is creating a bit of confusion. Oh, that's ridiculous. And, like I say, you know, gray area. So I think we've got to look at that as well. It's like calling uh, timber frame housing MMC, really, it's not because 
obviously there is a difference between open panel and closed panel mm-hmm. sips etc but there's not much like innovation or yeah within this yeah i started reading an article yesterday actually about um modular and it was i can't remember what the article was but i just remember spotting a pattern in it and it was essentially that like the words you use are extremely important for you in order to get insurance and funding and whatnot and i was just like this is absolutely ridiculous like you just change a word and basically you can get what you want (laughs) yeah one of the things one of the step changes we saw about five six years ago was the in one of the government reports i think it was Gavron, I can't remember, but there was a white paper that was released and they started to refer to offsite and modular as precision manufactured housing. And that, that is just like a way of making it sound more intriguing and, you know, and it probably in fairness is a better representation of what's being done. It is precision manufactured. You know, they are working to really small tolerances, but it's ultimately a better way of, of saying offsite construction or, you know, or modular. Which, which maybe has a, I don't know, it has a stigma attached to it possibly. But some of the some of the stuff that you see now, modular, we did a project for a student accommodation in Bath about probably about eight years ago now. And you, you would think that building had been there for 150 years. It was it, The facade was cloaked and it all looked like, you know, a, a, a historic building. Nice. Yet behind the facade was a load of rectangles and squares you know <laughs> yeah. so a lot can be done and i think that's again something that we've seen move forward it isn't just boxes and squares and a lot more can be done aesthetically with buildings now in modular mm-hmm. so it feels to me like the industry is certainly on the up and, and it's certainly an area of the market that we do a lot of really great work and, and as i say the clients in the main are, are absolutely superb we, we've got one design partnership in particular with a company called mar uh, Ryan Geldard and his team and, and the way that they deal with us as a as a supply chain customer we are seen as partners in the projects everything is open and transparent the teams meet up regularly to discuss feedback in both directions when there's problems on jobs it's dealt with fairly and insensitively and that they kind of respect the work that we do for them so you know it it clearly shows to me and Ryan's a fairly young guy himself and in his early 30s but it just shows that with the right approach and the right respect in both directions, that things can be done. Do we still have problems? Of course we do. And I, I, I put an article out last week about mistakes. How do we tackle mistakes? Mistakes will happen. We all make mistakes. So how do we, how do we dim or turn down the volume of what happens when mistakes are made and make it more palatable and more fair and reasonable for everybody? Because if we, if we don't, you know, imagine if every time a doctor did a, a surgery on a patient yeah. and it didn't go well or, they, you know, he didn't fix his knee or his arm. Imagine mm. if that doctor was sued by the patient's yeah. family and got financially penalized because he, he couldn't fix it. You wouldn't have any doctors, would you? You know, and that in construction, there's so many consultants and people that work in construction that when they make a mistake, an honest and simple mistake, that's not necessarily even their fault. They just get absolutely chastised and, and penalised to, to an unsustainable level. And I think that's a, I don't know what the answer is to that other than trying to limit the amount of mistakes that could and, and can happen, I, I think is obviously the starting point. But how we solve that whole issue of, well, you made the mistake, so you're picking up the bill. It's a real problem in construction, massive problem. Mm-hmm. Dan, so... Obviously, you've been in construction, I think you said 20, 22 years, was it? Yeah, that's why I've got no hair, mate. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, that was my question. Yeah. That was my question. <laughs> when, did you, when did you hair go? How do you relax? <laughs> no, 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 no. How do you relax? That was my question. Oh, yeah. That is hard. I mean, I've, I've probably, like everybody, been guilty of um, neglecting myself at, at times as I've, I've built the business and, and my career. And once you start to realize that you are struggling with, with mental health or, or stress or anxiety or whatever it might be, you have to ultimately you have to go and um and find ways and means of, of coping better so so for me now um trying to turn off from the business is really challenging i think anybody that goes into business for themselves you have to concede that all of the good things that you get from it are equally outweighed by the bad things so the bad thing is that it's with you 24 7 so even when you're on holiday you're not on holiday and things like that but um what what I try, I tend to do now in my own spare time we've, we've got I've got a young family and a, and a dog so I do a lot of walking now and try and get as much exercise as I can try and eat the right things because I, again I've made a mental correlation between eating the wrong things it might feel nice at the short in the short term but it certainly doesn't feel nice in the long term so so yeah it's, it's just uh, I, I can tend to try and focus my time around playing a bit of golf watching a bit of football um exercising and, and just running my, my girls around to all the various appointments that they've got and that's <laughs> keeps me busy when i'm not at work nice we'll have to sweat our round of golf i said this year is like the golf year for me I, I used to play quite a bit and i haven't done it for a while and now i need to get back into it because my mates are doing it and i'm just getting extremely jealous of getting out and getting some fresh air and just just like stepping away from business work do it don't talk I don't want to sound a bit a bit feeble here, but I, I definitely reconnected with nature during COVID. Yeah. So when there was mm. nothing there was nothing mm. else to do other than go out for a walk, you kind of start to realise that just going out and being in, out in the fresh air and in, and in surrounded by trees and animals and stuff like that, there's a lot to be said on your mental health and well-being. So yeah. you know, 100%. I think golf is a great sport for that because you get to go out and thrash your ball around a golf course, you, you walk in, you're breathing in fresh air and all that good stuff. And, you, and you're getting a bit of sun on your face as well. So a bit of vitamin D that we all know is very important, certainly through those winter months. And very, a bonus point, you can do a bit of business on there if you're, if you're smart about it. We've definitely done a bit of business on the golf course <laughs> over the years. Yeah, that definitely works. <laughs> and in the pub as well, to be fair, mate. We've got um, we've got a really great set of, um, of guys in both teams, to be honest with you. And... Um, all of them work hard, but enjoy a beer and, and play hard as well. So we tend to find a lot of clients and enjoy enjoy our company nine to five and excellent, and, and then having a laugh afterwards, with, you know, with a beer in the pub or whatever. So that's always good fun. Sounds like a good balance. All right, uh, Dan. So I was going to ask you about if you were not in construction, what would you do? But I'm conscious of time. Maybe just give us a uh, one word answer, and then we can wrap this up. Well, I was very nearly a professional table tennis player. Would you believe? So, uh, oh wow! Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so um, awesome. I decided uh, not not to pursue that. <laughs> I don't know whether that was right or wrong. So, no, who knows? Yeah, cool. who knows where I'd be? <laughs> All right, Dan. So, where can um, people find out more about you and your businesses? Yeah, in simple terms, it's um, www.designforstructures.com or www.cadco.com, and if it's skills and training and, and stuff like that. But yeah. Really interested in always connecting with new people, clients, customers, suppliers. And um, obviously, it's been great meeting you guys and, and chewing the fat. So thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Dan. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode. <laughs>